0: In the summer of 2012, um, I went through a season that is commonly called burnout, and uh, if you've ever been there before or know what that's like, it's often the result of a prolonged period of living as if you're not a human but a robot, as if you have inexhaustible resources, and resources you don't have you supplement with stuff like caffeine and Red Bull. And over that, that time leading up to that, um, I, I was making a lot of bad decisions. I was working too hard, not taking time off, not taking care of myself. But I came to a place uh, where I described to a friend, it was as if I was dehydrated, sitting next to an empty well, surrounded by people holding out their cups and asking me to fill them, which is seriously depressing. And it was in that season that I, I began to realize that I wasn't an inexhaustible resource, that I was a limited resource. And uh, sometimes burnout comes because of depression. Sometimes it comes because of overwork. Sometimes it comes with cynicism. But what I found in that period, that summer of 2012, when I finally put a term to what I'd been feeling for some time I finally realized that there were some causes. I didn't just get here overnight. And there were some things that I learned in that season that maybe, even if you haven't been through burnout, maybe you've experienced yourself or lessons for you to learn. And the first thing I learned is that I was trying to do what Jesus said in my own power and strength. Like, like last Sunday, we had our six readers up here and they read through Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7. And I would read the Bible because I was a pastor and I would teach it, but I would try to do it in my own power and strength. I would read the words of Jesus, even the difficult phrases, and go, okay, I'm just going to buckle down and try harder and do better at that. Even though I failed yesterday, even though I'm going to fail today, I'm just going to keep trying. And I kept doing that in my own power and strength. And the more and the more I tried, the more and more buried I felt. Maybe you've been there before, where the harder and harder you try, the the more behind and behind you feel. And so it became a a point in my life where I I didn't actually want to read the Bible because it just reminded me of all the things I couldn't do on my own all the places I was missing it, all the people I was failing, all the places that I was letting people down. That was one of the lessons I learned. The other lesson I learned is that I was trying to earn God's love and acceptance through right action instead of living from God's love and acceptance. Now, you may say, Scott, that sounds like it's the same thing. It's it's not. The first half of this sentence is the place where many of us live because we grew up in church or you grew up around religion and you think that God's love and acceptance is somehow earned through doing all the right things, through checking all the boxes and crossing all the T's. And I meet people as a pastor who are kind of coming back to church and they have in their mind this idea that their life fell apart. And so if they're just here more and if they just pray more, And if they just read the Bible more, and if they do the right things more, then they won't end up back where they were before they came here. And while those are all good things, we don't earn God's love and acceptance through right action. If we did, none of us would ever have a chance at God's love, because we'd have missed it and blown it along the way, and by the end of today, we'd have blown it too. Instead of doing that, the other option is to live from God's love and acceptance. Maybe you have somebody in your life who you can never satisfy, a parent, a friend, a family member, and you know how exhausting it is to try to earn their love and acceptance and earn their love and acceptance and know that there's nothing that you could do that's ever good enough for them. That relationship is a toxic one. And then you have people in your life who just love and accept you for who you are. And that's freeing. And what I found in that season is that I could live from God's love and acceptance instead of live for it. And that's why I talk about burnout in the past tense. Because I don't live there anymore. I still try to do the right things, but for the right reasons. Not trying to earn his love, but trying to live from it. Over these five weeks, we're talking about this guy named Jesus whose teachings changed the world. And I I share that story and those lessons at the beginning because it's the framework that Jesus steps into when he comes to earth 2,000 years ago. You see, everyone in that day was trying to earn God's love and acceptance through right action. They were trying to do all of the right things. In fact, by this time, the Jews had over 600 right things you had to do. And you thought your to-do list was along today. 600 plus laws. At some point, everybody was breaking one of them. They just didn't even know it because they couldn't even remember them all. And Jesus steps on the scene and he begins to talk about this idea called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is mentioned 80 times in the Gospels. 80 separate instances. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus talks about his kingdom which to me means it's probably a big deal. If someone mentions something 80 times, you probably should pay attention to it. And Jesus comes out of his temptation in the desert. He steps on the scene. He delivers his first sermon, which is one sentence long, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In your translation, it might say the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of heaven is available, the kingdom of heaven is accessible. He announces that the kingdom of heaven is near, people are to repent because of it. And then he goes on and describes some things that happened. It says, according to Matthew, that he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And his fame spread across Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pain, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. If we could have the lights back on, that would be awesome, so everybody can take notes. Appreciate that one. And so if, if you hear one thing today—thank you guys back there—if you guys hear one thing today, here's what I want to talk to you about. It's this big idea that understanding the good news of the kingdom as Jesus' central message helps us to share it today, understanding the good news of the kingdom— As Jesus's central message helps us to share it today. One of the things I I thought about talking to you about today is all the things that we think of when we think about Jesus. His favorite phrases, you know. If you you hear Jesus Jesus teaching, you might think of, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, have eternal life. Or maybe you think about love your neighbor. Or maybe you think about turn the other cheek. Or maybe you think about don't judge lest you be judged. Or, or maybe you think about don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Or, or maybe you think about this idea that greater love has no one than this than a man laying down his life for his friends. All of these amazing, well-known phrases of Jesus. And while those are some of the most famous things he says, the central thing Jesus talks about is his kingdom. He says all those things one time. He talks about his kingdom 80 different times. And I was graduating from seminary, or from college in 2006, and beginning seminary when somebody gave me a copy of this book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. And I spent six months in this book, which is weird because at the end of college and before seminary, it was the only book I actually wanted to read. I was exhausted from reading, but Dallas Willard helped me to see that the central message of Jesus was the kingdom of God. You must say, Scott, what is the kingdom of God? What is this kingdom? Well, I'll try to give you a short definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of God. The kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of God. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he's talking about God reigning and God ruling. You might say, Scott, where is the kingdom of God? Well, it's everywhere that God is reigning and ruling. And in the sense that many people had in that day of a kingdom with a king and everywhere that that kingdom was king over, that's the kingdom of God. Everywhere where God is king is the kingdom of God. And Jesus began his ministry not by telling people to love one another, not by telling them to turn the other cheek, not by telling them how to observe the Sabbath or treat their husband or their children. He begins his earthly ministry by saying, repent, my kingdom is near. And his primary message wasn't even that the kingdom was near, but that that was good news. We use this phrase gospel now to represent that idea of good news. People say the gospel. Well, the gospel literally in Greek means good news. It means that I have good news to deliver you. A a sentinel would come into a town and announce that there was a new king. And that'd be the good news, the gospel. Hey, there's a new king. There's a new Caesar. Or there was a battle that had been won. Or, hey, you're going to have to pay less taxes this year. Or, hey, there's food coming. Or, hey, there's this good news. And the, the kingdom of God was good news for three reasons. I read from the ESV earlier, you might have the New Living or the NIV, and in different translations, words are used to describe this kingdom. It's near, it's accessible, and it's available. Jesus was saying, my reign and rule in your life is near and accessible and available. You can enter into life with me, and you go, Scott, why is that significant? Because if you are somebody who, like me, pre-burnout, was trying to do all the right things for the wrong reasons, was trying to satisfy all of God's laws, and it was leaving you feeling more exhausted, and more buried, more inadequate, more of a failure, for Jesus to announce that you could enter into that life not through doing all the right things, but through him, that sounds like a bit of a load off my shoulders. That sounds like a little bit of a, a weight off of my back. Dallas Willard describes Jesus' message this way. He says, our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. Did you know you have a kingdom? The kingdom of Chris, the kingdom of Tim, the kingdom of Mary. Your kingdom is the place where your will is effective, where you get what you want. Now, if you're a parent, some days your kingdom feels very small because your will doesn't go very far when it comes to your kids, Or maybe if you're a supervisor at work, you you think your kingdom is bigger than it is, and then you figure out that your employees aren't doing what you told them to do. But he says our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. Whatever we have say over is in our kingdom. Now God's own kingdom or rule is the range of God's effective will, where what God wants done is done accordingly. The kingdom of God is not essentially a social or political reality. Jesus's gospel of the kingdom was not that the kingdom was about to come or had recently come into existence. It wasn't a new idea. In fact, if we attend to what he actually said, it is clear that his message concerned only the new accessibility of the kingdom to humanity through himself. Jesus was saying, everything that you want, that you've been trying your hardest to gain through your discipline and self-effort is now available through me this is why that we call this the gospel or the good news. That you aren't here today to try to earn God's love. You're not here today to do all the right things that at the end of your life, you stand before God and go, man, you tried really hard and I appreciate that. Come on in. Man, you know what? You did more good things than bad things. You know what? You were at church more than your neighbor was. You prayed more than your spouse did. You had a better marriage than your parents did. You ran your business better than the guy you bought it from. Therefore, come on in. No, Jesus is saying, you can enter into my kingdom, not through your right actions, but through me. And that's why the reign and rule of God was not a new idea. God had been God for thousands of years before Jesus came to earth. Now he's saying the new idea is that is it is accessible and available and near to you through Jesus. And if you're beaten up, burned out, bedraggled, or exhausted by life, here's the good news. Jesus says you can enter into life through me. In the book of John, Jesus talks about this. I don't have this on the slides, guys, so don't freak out. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is John chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's that's why Jesus came. He didn't come for us to be better versions of ourselves through self-discipline and self-effort. No, he came that we might find abundant life through him, and that this was the good news he was sharing, that that life in the kingdom was available through all humanity, now through him. Not by good deeds, not by following all the laws, but by having a relationship with Jesus. And that's why we, according to Jamie, drown people on Sunday mornings. Because people have discovered that life through Jesus. And we're here to celebrate with them. Now, this central message of the kingdom has been mistaken over the years and misinterpreted. And there's four ways that we've misinterpreted. I call these the major errors of the church concerning the kingdom. And the first one is that we've reduced the kingdom to just the church. We've reduced the reign and rule of God in the world to just the church. And so a lot of times churches don't talk much about the kingdom because all they really care about is their own kingdom. Our tendency as a church could even be to just care about the things that only we're doing. Think about what's only happening here in our little world. and it's a, a newsflash for some of us, but God's kingdom is bigger than cornerstone. God's kingdom is actually bigger than Prescott, and God's kingdom is actually bigger than America. And part of the jagged pill for Americans to swallow today is that we are right on the cusp of a shift in global Christianity. By 2050, the average Christian in the world will not be white and live in America. She will be black or brown, and she will live below the equator. In 1900, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. And when that whole Y2K thing hit, one of the things we missed is that Africa entered the 21st century not with 10 million Christians, but with 300 million Christians. In the 1950s, when communism took over China, everyone wrung their hands, what's going to happen in China? And then when Christians got access to China again in the 1990s, we learned God had, had it taken care of. And instead of there being no Christians, there were tens of millions and over 100 million Christians. God's kingdom is at work, but it's in places that often surprise us. And his kingdom is much bigger than our church. His kingdom is much bigger than the church. But don't be mistaken, God promises that he is going to advance his kingdom, and his primary instrument is the church. The second error we make with the kingdom is that we spiritualize the kingdom as if it's completely realized now. Many people talk about the kingdom of God, and they just make it the the way that God works in our lives individually in our hearts and souls. And so, some churches and some people get so consumed with individual people coming to know Jesus that they forget all of the other things the kingdom involves. We just read the words of Jesus in Matthew 4. And if you remember what just happened, Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then, what did he do? He healed people, he cured them, he cleansed them, and he met their needs. And sometimes we over-spiritualize God's work to only be concerned with the saving of people's individual lives when in fact God's kingdom is concerned with the real tangible things that are happening in the world. And that's why we can't over-spiritualize things. There's a phrase, he's so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good. And God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, but it's a practical and a real one. And that's why whenever you read Jesus in the Gospels talking about his kingdom, immediately then you see him healing people, feeding people, meeting their tangible needs. As a church, we can't get so consumed with getting people to heaven that we forget about their condition here today. The third error the church has made is that we postpone the kingdom to only being realized in eternity. This is why some of you grew up in a church that read Matthew 5 through 7, our passage for last week, and said, yeah, that that doesn't work here on earth. That only describes life in eternity. You can't turn the other cheek today. You can't go the second mile. You can't pray for your enemies. You'll be a doormat. People will walk all over you. No, Jesus didn't give us these words for eternity. He gave them for us now. And so we can't postpone his kingdom to eternity. In that book I mentioned earlier, Dallas Willard said, the kingdom of God is only found where God reigns. God's reign begins hidden, buried within, and seen in secret. It operates from the inside out or not at all. And sometimes the reason why we don't talk much about the kingdom is that it's too small for us and too insignificant for us. But in the book of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said, my kingdom is like a mustard seed. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's good because you could have missed it. It's so small. If you've ever seen a mustard tree, you know there's an inverse relationship between the, side of the size of the seed and the size of the tree. Don't mistake what God's doing in your life and in your world because it seems small and in, indivisible to you. It may seem small and invisible now, but one day it'll be far from that. Number four, we tame the kingdom by removing the complexity and the mystery. You see, the way that God works is not the way that I work. It isn't the way that you would work. And one of our challenges is we don't comprehend the ways of God. And so what we do is we tame God's ways down into the size that we can understand and comprehend. I was e lunch with a guy this week and I was talking to him and he was asking, hey, how have you kind of come to peace with all of the pieces of Christianity that don't make sense and don't resolve well? I said, well, I'm still wrestling with them. I said, but I'm glad that I am because it means that I'm honest. If you have no place in your faith for complexity and mystery, and if all of God's ways have to make sense to you, you will worship a very small God or you will walk away from him. No, God's ways are complex and mysterious. The prophet Isaiah said, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And so the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is complex and mysterious. And in this series, we're going to try to reduce that, but we're not going to remove it. And if you haven't had a conversation with God at your life at some point that said, God, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't get this. Then you're not being honest. Because God's ways are not ours. And he doesn't function in our reality. And when we tame the kingdom down so that the complexity and the mystery is gone, so is the power. You ever thought about that? That if you understood all of God's ways, his ways wouldn't be very powerful. I'm so glad I don't get how God works sometimes. Cause his plan's better than mine. His ways are better than mine. His idea of what's happening is bigger than mine. And I get down the road and I go, oh my gosh, I never would have seen that. I never would have done that. If it had been up to me, that wouldn't even have been possible. And so in the short term, we get frustrated and we get confused. But in the long term, we get awed and filled with wonder because we see God working in ways that go beyond our our comprehension. When Jesus steps out on the scene for the first time, it says that Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, and the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This, like Matthew 4, is the first instance of Jesus' teaching. And then we read after his resurrection in Acts 1, it says, he presented himself alive to them. After his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God was his first message. He talked about it 80 times in the middle, and then after he came back from the dead, it was his message again. I think it should be important and significant for us. And I want to talk to you real quickly about some implications for us. If this is the most important message of Jesus, what should we do? Well, the first thing we should do is repent. Repent. Now, that isn't a word that's very popular today. I think many of us didn't use that word this week. Now, somebody may have shouted at us from the road as we were driving, or maybe you saw it on a billboard, or maybe you got a um, a crazily designed mailer in your mailbox that included that word very largely on it. The word repentance has fallen out of popularity, but in the words of Jesus, it was as common a word to us as smartphone and media. It just was a common word. And in that day, the word repent meant to make a U-turn or to turn around based upon new information. Some of you had this experience before. You're driving with someone that you chose to make vows to and you're having a heated conversation about the nature and direction of where you're going and the best way to get there. One of you is right and one of you is wrong and one of you is telling the other one to turn around and you're not doing it until finally you realize you get new information and you go, you know what? We are going the wrong way. I probably should turn around. And so you swallow your pride and you say those three magic words I was wrong. I know it's so hard to say, but you can say it. You'll survive. I was wrong. And you turn around. And guess what? You get where you're supposed to go, and you live. And Jesus is saying that we need to repent. Why? Because his kingdom is near. Well, well, why would we repent because of that? Because we've been living as if it's not near as if it's not available, and as if it's not accessible. Here's the great scandal in church life I've discovered, that many of us profess and know all the words to amazing grace. We just function as if that's not the way the world works. We fall back on grace when we screw up, but, but we lead with self-improvement, self-discipline, self-effort. We fall flat on our face. We go, I'm so grateful for God's grace. But on Monday morning, when the week is starting, we're not living from grace. We're living from, I'm going to do my best to earn God's love. That's why when bad things happen, we don't go, well, I'm just grateful for God's grace. We go, why did this happen to me? I'm a good person. I've been doing all the right things. I've been at church. I've raised our kids the right way. I tithe. Why would God allow this to happen to me? And our frame of reference for all those questions is not the abundant grace God has given us. It's all the good things that we've been doing. And this is why we have to repent. Not people who had no idea church was happening today and aren't here, but people who've been here every Sunday this year. We need to repent and go a new direction because we've been living as if everything in our relationship with God is based upon what we do. We've been functioning as if we didn't need Jesus to die for us. We were good in our own. And that's why repentance isn't a message for those who've never read a Bible and who've never heard of Jesus. It's a message for those who know every single word of amazing grace. Because our temptation is to not live from there. It's to go back to the way we lived before. As if we could earn God's love and favor. The first implication of the message of the kingdom is repent, turn around, go a different direction. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. The second implication of this message is that we can enter the kingdom through Jesus. We can enter into this grace and this mercy and this abundant life, not through our self-effort, but through Jesus. He's making it available to us, and he's saying, this is good news. You can find everything you've looking for, been looking for, not through yourself, but through me. Instead of, as one person said, here are my laws, continually do them to be considered righteous, which is how many of us grew up here in the summer on the Mount. Many of us grew up here in the Bible saying, these are the laws of God, do them so you'll be righteous. That's the message Jesus is not saying here. Instead of saying that, what he's saying is, here is my son, the law fulfilled. Love him, obey him, and be transformed. Not earn your righteousness, but receive it through Jesus. And as you follow him, and as you trust in him, and as you walk in his ways, he will continue to transform you. That's why, as we read last week in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus doesn't make things easy easier. He makes them harder. You notice that? In Matthew chapter 5, it says, you have heard that it said you should not murder. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So today I'm surrounded by a bunch of adulterers and murderers. And you've been listening to it one preach to you for 30 minutes. What Jesus does is that he raises the standard and he deepens the grace. He raises the standard of, of what righteous living looks like and then he gives more grace because he knows how far short we will fall. And he says not do all these things so you'll be considered righteous because the standard for righteousness just got higher. No, he said, I'm making my son available to you. He's already fulfilled and done all those things. Now, as you love him and trust him and obey him and follow him, you'll gain the strength and gain the ability to be transformed and do those things. Not if you do them on your own, but if you do them through Jesus. Jesus said, as we read last week in Matthew chapter six, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Later on, it says that 12 disciples went out from Jesus and he instructed them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. The third implication for us is that we're called to seek and to announce God's kingdom. As followers of Jesus, we're not only to seek God's kingdom ourselves, we're called to announce it to other people. We're called to let them know that this kingdom, this abundant life under the reign and rule of God is available to them too. And to do so, we don't just do so with our words, we do so with our actions, and historically, the church has swung back and forth between these two things. There have been seasons where the church was really good proclaiming and announcing the kingdom. We just weren't really good at showing it. And there were times when the church was really good at, at showing and giving visible actions that the kingdom was here. We just didn't really talk about it as much. We just did the whole so- social justice thing to the exclusion of the sharing the gospel and baptizing people. And, and we're called to do both. And, and part of me standing here today is, is me recognizing and repenting that at times even our church over our 30-year history has not been, done both well. At times in my life, I've not done both of these well. But this is what it means to seek and announce the kingdom. That with our words, we announce that God's kingdom is available to people. They can enter into it. And we give practical, visible Tangible applications of it to people because it's not enough to tell a hungry person that Jesus loves them. You got to feed them too. And it's not enough to feed them physically if you're not going to meet their spiritual needs. Jesus says, no, seek my kingdom. Go and share my gospel and heal the sick and feed the poor. So before we close today, I've got a couple next steps for you. The first one is not in your notes, and I'm just going to tell you this, that, that this message is really part one of a part two message. I wrote this sermon, and it was 70 minutes long, and so I decided to break it up into two for your good and for my good. And so some of the practical pieces of this message I've saved for next week, and I've just tried to lay the foundation today. The first step for you and me is to ask ourselves, did we enter Jesus's kingdom Or did we invite him to join ours? Ask yourself, did I enter Jesus' kingdom or did I invite him to join mine? Another way to ask this question would be, who's on the throne of your kingdom? Is it you or is it Jesus? This is the hard part for us because we're Americans. 250 years ago, we dumped our tea into the Boston Harbor. We thumbed our nose at King George. And we said, there will never be another king over us again, which is great politically. It's just terrible biblically. Because guess what? You are a servant of the king. And you're not the king anymore. When you step in that water and get baptized, you're saying, I am laying down the rights to my kingdom and I'm stepping into somebody else's. Number two. Determine what you need to repent of and turn around. If you can't remember the last time you repented, you're overdue. If you can't remember the last time that you got new information or new awareness and new perspective and recognized you were going the wrong direction and you humbled yourself and you turned around and went a different direction, you're overdue because you're just not that good. I'm not either. So we all have places we need to repent and turn around. And then number three, daily renew your kingdom perspective through prayer and reading scripture. I talk to people every single week who I think are trying to encourage me who said, man, that really fed me today. I'm going to be chewing on that all week. That's awesome that I'm giving you enough to think about that it lasts longer than lunch. I'm really grateful for that. But if you try to live all week on this message, you're going to be like I was at the beginning of this message. You're going to be dehydrated and thirsty. I spend 30 minutes with you every week. And if this is the only 30 minutes you think about God's perspective on the world, and yet you watch two hours of cable news every night, or you spend three hours on Facebook every day, you're not being discipled by God's word, you're being discipled by our culture. Because 10 or 15 hours can't compete with 30 minutes. And if you're going to live in this world which says earn, gain, achieve love and acceptance and affirmation through what you do, then on a daily basis, you're going to have to renew your perspective which says, I'm not here to earn God's love and approval. I already have it in Jesus. I'm entering into that in Jesus, and so I'm going to live from God's love and approval and acceptance, not for it. And so that's going to take prayer. That's going to take reading scripture. That's going to take the biggest and strongest and hardest battle you've ever been in in your life. I think the great challenge of our world today is that people are being discipled and shaped not by God's word, but by cable news and social media and it suffers me as a pastor cuz i realize the little time we have together this week and the vast majority of you who won't read your bible between now and then and we wonder why we're losing daily renew next week i'm going to share with you two things this is kind of a pitch to come back next week I'm going to share with you about the upside-down perspective of Jesus. Jesus, who says the first will be last, and the last will be first. Turn the other cheek, go the second mile. we will talk about how we understand the world from his perspective. And then two, how do we live with hope today? Because the kingdom of God is three things. It's presently here, and it's not yet here. It's internal in human hearts, and it's external in this world. It's invisible in places you can't see and it's visible in places you can. And if you go, how does that work? Come back next week. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.